Today on the podcast, what does it mean to live a life as an adventurer? It might be an adventurer. Instead of what you believe in, that's my guest, David Allen Arnold, author, divorced dad, and award-winning helicopter cameraman. We swore that next on the podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to the No Sitting on the Sideline Dad podcast, a podcast about a journey of discovery and conversations about not sitting on the sideline of life. Let's get involved. Here's host Joe Foley. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, my name is Joe Foley. I want to say thank you for being here. I know as parents, dads, moms, we're just busy, busy people in this world nowadays. And I want to say thank you for being here, really. And this is first time, welcome. You choose to spend time means a lot. It really does. I'm on a journey just like you, trying to figure this out about one day at a time. You know, it really is. The reason why I talk to these people is I like to find out, hey, I like to talk to people. I, I'll even talk to you. I enjoy meeting people. But I like to learn different things because I don't know everything. Me and my son are having a conversation tonight because he goes, I, I'm still learning, Dad. And he goes, I think it's also learn too, still learning too, Dad. I'm like, yeah, hmm. At 44, I am still learning. I'm still learning, trying to figure this out one day at a time. Next up, my guest, David Allen Arnold. David lives his life as an adventurer and as a divorced dad. He's also a helicopter cameraman. His job takes him to the Bering Sea to video, videotape crab boats and large waves in the, in the um, Deadliest Cat show to launch sporting events like Super Bowl and movies. He devoted dad to his son. He's in... He had, has his struggles, but his positive attitude and hard work helps him as a dad and also advances his career. He talks about sweeping floors to the camera in the sky. It is, shows that you really stick to it and put your nose to the grindstone. You really can get somewhere. And also, he tells stories, a really interesting story about filming Dudley's catch on the Bering Sea in a small helicopter. That's a scary job. <laughs> he shares a lot of stuff in this episode. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the podcast, David. Mr. Joe, thank you so much for having me on. I, I love your format. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I love, I like, I know like kind of other dad, follow dads here too. And a guy, and a, and a dad who has an interesting job. I really do appreciate that because you know what? It's exciting to talk to other people. But one thing I, I like to start off in, in the sense that because we were, we were fellow dads, we can connect that way. What I like to think it is a question. What is like, say like an old dad experience? Like, oh man, I can't believe I did that. Oh, um. You know, I, I think one day with my little one, when he was probably, I don't know, uh, let me think how old, he was probably three or four, and he did something one day, and I just lost my temper, and I blew up, and I yelled at him, and I'm kind of waiting for the dust to settle in the room, and I thought, wow, I didn't know I could get that mad, and uh, it was kind of scary, mm -hmm. and I think uh, a lot of parents... <laughs> Probably, you know, that's part of being a parent is you so many times you learn either a mistake that you had no idea you were capable of making or some weird flaw like that where, where I just lost my temper and blew up and I didn't hit him or anything. But, man, I was so mad and I thought, oh, wow, that's not good. And uh, that's that's one of a thousand times uh, since he was born where I just had a moment of, ooh, that wasn't good. I, I need to do better than that. <laughs> There's one title in your book that um, it kind of made me hit on a little bit. I, I read, the, uh, I read the, the page, but the title of it, that one, that chapter is The Gift. 
in the gift, I'm, I'm assuming it is your son. Yes, my little one. He, uh, God bless him. He beat the 99.9% odds on the back of his mom's birth control pills. I've always felt that I was made to be a dad and made to be a provider. And, um, and so it didn't scare me at all. And in fact, that day when she out of the blue, you know, she, she ran up to me in a panic and said, I'm pregnant and mm-hmm. had this look on her face, like the world had just stopped turning. And that day was just like every other day, uh, since he entered our lives, it's, it was just a mixture of uh, a little bit annoyed, a little bit surprised, but mostly just amazement and wonderment and just joy. And, um, and I've loved every day since, since I found out that he was coming to earth and we had a, you know, not to take a, a dark turn on you, but we, we had a conversation that I wasn't comfortable with. And this story is in my book, help from above. She talked about abortion and she said, you know, this isn't our only option, meaning, you know, having a kid, you know, I, I was kind and polite to her. And, but I said, no, this is the only option for me. I can't, I just can't fathom telling a little tiny human person. It's not my place mm-hmm. to tell him he can't come. And I don't live that way. I, I live my, my life is an adventure. I see unexpected things. I feel the pain and the struggle and the frustration of them, but I also embrace them and I enjoy them. And I think that that's the way to live is, is to take what comes at you and make it good. It is interesting being a dad. I think your son's around eight or nine or nine years old, if I'm not mistaken. And it's interesting to watch the different stages of, you know, it's amazing. Like, you know, this little ball of clay, like you can't, people can't see listening, but little ball of clay, then turn it up to like half a ball of clay, then the person with like a head and then the personality and just, and then the attitude, and my son's just five. He gets, now it's the, the, the little bit of a, I call it snarkiness. And but the amazement of how quick they learn and all the things they do, it's like, it's like, it's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, no, you're right. My, my little one turned evil at age two. And uh, <laughs> his, his most said word from age two was no. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I laugh at it. And, um, at, on the other side of the coin, you know, at age nine, now he's nine years old, really, no matter what we're doing or no matter what comes up in our lives, uh, he and I make every decision together and, you know, we'll talk about it and we work it out together and we decide things together. And, uh, and I love living that way. And I, I love that idea of giving him a choice. He said, uh, one day we were talking and he said, well, how, how am I going to get a little brother or sister? And I said, well, buddy, you know, um, you know how I found my dog? And he goes, yeah, you, you rescued the dog running in traffic. And I said, well, maybe we'll find a kid that way. (laughs) And he goes, he goes, okay. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, we, we could adopt a kid, you know, and, and it's just, it's just kind of funny. He and I just kind of look at the world and what he wants to do or what we have to do next in life. And we, we talk about everything and we talk about our options and we decide together uh, how to move forward. Is there any challenges of being a father? Like any challenges you have of being just, you know, I know your situation, but um, being a dad, some of the challenges come along with it. You being a single dad. 
Well, nothing really noteworthy. I mean, for me, the good outweighs the bad. So I think it's easy to focus on the negative and the, the frustration that kids give you every day. <laughs> but I, I really enjoy uh, just the, the fun of having a little person <laughs> that, you know, we get to, you know, every, every day and, and it's, and it's interesting, you know, I had some things beyond my control and, and his mom changed our lives in 2010 and she left and uh, broke up our family. So I was kind of stuck with that. But what's interesting is that over the years, she has never asked if I'll take him on one of her dates because she knows the answer is yes. She knows that there's nothing in the world that I would rather do than spend a day with him. So she, she doesn't ask if, if I want him. She just asks if I'm in town because she knows the answer is yes. And that's, that's how I live my life. I've definitely set my career aside. I've definitely missed out on work opportunities and money I could have made. But I'm just happy when he and I are together. It's just, there's literally nothing I'd rather do. And, um, and so I just love every day. And, and I'll tell you this, people always say, oh, they grow up so fast. You're blinking they're in college. But not for me. My, my little one has grown up very slowly. And I think it's because we spend so much time together. I'd like to think that he'll, he'll uh, treat his kids that way. And he'll spend lots of time with his kids, maybe more than other people normally do. But I think the reality is that he probably will because he's learning it from me. You're setting a good example for a future, and that's that's a great thing to be, especially being a father. You mentioned something about a 2010 when the um, his mom changed your life. I don't know if you want to talk a little about that. I mean, how did you how did you handle it? Because I mean, my experience, I've gone through a divorce, and I've mm -hmm. I've kind of similar situation as you, and um. And I handled it different. I'm curious how you handled it. Didn't help from above. I have the conversation word for word that we had mm -hmm. uh, because for me, it was just a normal, typical day. I love you. I love you, too. I went to work. She said, OK, see you later. OK, great. See you later. And then she called and said, don't come home. And it was like a bolt of lightning out of a clear blue sky. It it. There was no warning. There was no, hey, I'm not happy. I can't live like this. Just, I love you. I love you too. See you later. And then she was gone. And so, of course, I came home, even though she said not to. I'm like, where else am I going to go? My, my whole life revolves around you and our little one. We were engaged to be married. And um, we had a very funny conversation that's in the book, uh, word for word. She said, what are you doing here? I said, I don't love you. Get out. And I said, well, I don't care. I want more kids. Mm -hmm. And she said, what? <laughs> I just said, I don't love you. Get out. <laughs> and I said, I don't care. You know, people don't love each other, have sex all the time. I mean, I, in other words, my life hadn't changed. My goals hadn't changed. My plans hadn't changed. We were supposed to be getting married and we had talked about having more kids. And she said, okay. And then out of the blue, she, you know, blows up our, our whole lives. And so I, I had to take the shock of that, you know, some of it's out of my control. You know, if, if she really wants to leave and break up my little one's home, then that's what she's going to do. And I can't stop her from doing that. And, and, um, and so I, I took it as it came. I was very open and honest with her and, uh, begged her not to do this. 
And I, I knew when she was doing it that she was going to make, honestly, not so much my life harder. She was going to make her own life harder and ridiculously hard <laughs> because, because I had, I didn't have other hobbies. Like I didn't drink beer and watch football. I just loved spending time with her. And, and once our son was born, you know, taking care of him, I used to at five in the morning, I, I wake up about four. So at five in the morning when he would wake up, I would take him out of the room so she could sleep in. And, uh, and I'd put him in his little carrier and we would walk down to the grocery store and we would buy all of mom's favorite things. And, you know, that way he's not in the house making noise. She can sleep in. And then when she woke up, we had all her favorite things all laid out. And that's kind of what, that was our routine. That's what we did every day. And, um, so when she broke up our family, uh, it, it was, it was craziness and it was something that I regret. I, I hate seeing people do that. And I don't believe in doing that. I don't believe in telling a kid one day that your mom and your dad aren't your mom and your dad anymore. There's going to be a new arrangement. <clears throat> I, I really believe that our little ones learn from watching us, not from hearing what we tell them. They learn from watching how we live every, every second of every day. And, and that needs to be, uh, a mom and a dad to live together and love each other and take care of each other and share and work out disagreements. The little ones have to see all those things. So they know how to do it in their lives. They know how to care for their little ones. They know how to treat their spouse. And so I was very sad when she took that away from us. How did you handle it? Cause I know it can, um, from my perspective, it was mentally, it was really mentally challenging. And I don't know if you've experienced that at all. I was grief stricken. It was like someone had died, you know, except that she just chose not to, not to be with us anymore. And, um, and I was very heartbroken and just, just absolutely distraught that my little one's family had been taken away. And, um, and so I didn't handle it, you know, in a sense, it just hurt. Mm -hmm. And, um, and it really was like a death in the family. I, I had to be told to stop bringing her flowers, mm -hmm. you know, because for, for weeks after she did this, I would sleep in my truck down the street so I could wait in the morning. I could wake up and, and walk over and take him out of the house. Like I always used to do when I lived there. And, uh, and a friend of mine heard that and he goes, what are you doing? He, he had to tell me to stop bringing Wyatt's mom flowers because that's we, we still did the same stuff every day, even though I was sleeping outside. <laughs> and uh, and so I had to be told to sort of unplug myself in some ways from our relationships. I did. And um, and I'll, I'll tell you, pe people who knew us together uh, at the time said, is she on crack? <laughs> I mean, it just, it made the decision made no sense, you know, from any angle. And, um, but that's the, that's the train wreck that happened to my family. And so I, I had to kind of treat it literally like a death in the family. And, um, and so I decided to keep my little one's life very simple. So it's always just been me and him ever since then. Uh, I don't bring beautiful women around my little one. Um, and over the years I tried to date cause I did want more kids, mm -hmm. but I would always just lose interest, especially when he was very young. I would always just lose interest. And I thought, you know what, this is, this is better. It's just me and him. And, and that way, as a result, anytime his mom 
would call me, uh, I was always available. There was, there were no plans I had made with another woman or another family that I couldn't drop and change and just go and pick him up and spend the day with him. It's always a good experience though, especially, um, the bonding moments too. Like it's simply just going for a walk or going to the park. It doesn't have to be anything expensive. And that father and son bonding. I mean, like I experienced it with my son, we shoot baskets. He's like five and it's a fun bonding experience. It's funny funny Mm -hmm. that you say that that we, we were talking a few minutes about how, you know, the kids watch what we do and, and see what we do and they learn from us. Like, um, what does your son think about what you do for work, you know, as a cameraman for on helicopters and like deadliest catches? What does he think about that? Well, he's a huge sports fan. So he in the past year, he started paying close attention. Dad, are you are you shooting the Rams game? <laughs> yeah, buddy, I'm shooting the Rams game. Oh, wow. OK. And uh, so he's he's starting to pay close attention to the games that I fly over for Monday Night Football or the Super Bowl uh, or the World Series. And because he absolutely loves, loves sports. And so I think he started to, you know, kids usually don't really think that much of what their parents do. (laughs) But I I think he's he's starting to think, oh, wow, this is so neat. My dad's going, you know, to fly over the game that I'm watching on TV. That's always interesting, too. Like my son will see me do a podcast and. I'm not paying attention where I have my, my microphone like right here and he'll start doing a podcast by himself. And it's just kind of cool to watch and then experience that as a, as a father, I, I see with your son that talks about the sports game and stuff like that. Nothing interesting book, your, your book help from above. I, I really enjoy the parts I did read about it. I, I think that what you do is and like any stories, like, can you talk about like what you do from that book? Yeah. Um, I have been a helicopter cameraman for 23 years and I work for every network in the world. Um, I've worked on some movies and so in the case of deadliest catch, when those crab boats are crashing through 30 foot waves and the spray is engulfing and covering the boat, there's a little tiny helicopter hovering next to the skipper's wheelhouse. Mm -hmm. And I'm in that and we're, (laughs) We're focusing a camera on his window so that the Discovery Channel audience can see him in there at the controls and, you know, shouting orders and making decisions about where to take the boat next. And and um, and so I have a lot of stories in the book of those adventures of of flying in uh, Alaska and looking down from my helicopter and seeing uh, just a dozen starving grizzly bears. (laughs) <laughs> and thinking, oh boy, I, I hope we don't land down there because <laughs> they'll eat us in about four seconds. <laughs> One thing that was interesting too is, um, like you said, Delhi Catch, you're flying really close. Have you had have any really interesting stories about big waves coming over? Like, holy, holy crap, I might get swept away. Yeah, I mean, every year the the weather tries to kill us on Delhi's Catch, <laughs> and um, and it's it's what you because I. I find that most often when people hear of extraordinary things, they it's almost like a comfort to themselves to say, oh, that can't be real. You know, those guys aren't really doing that. They just make it look that way on the show. And uh, so I always give a little cold splash of water around people who ask those questions. And I tell them, honestly, it's exactly what you see on the show. They're not making anything up. In fact, season one of Deadliest Catch, six men were killed oh, on wow. the first day of the season. And they had not caught a single crab, any of the boats. Oh, wow. Uh, in fact, uh, they used to fight tooth and nail 
to uh, catch the crabs the, as quick as they could because it was a race in those days. And um, in season one of Deadliest Catch, the season opens and then the regulators will close the season when the, um, the right amount of crabs have been caught by the fleet. But you don't know when that is. So if by Friday, if they close the season, if you haven't caught anything, you get nothing and you still have the million dollar expenses of your fishing boat and your season. And so they used to fight tooth and nail to catch those crabs. But on season one of Deadliest Catch, the boats stopped what they were doing. None of them had put any pots in the water. They all stopped what they were doing and they steamed towards the last known point where one of the boats had disappeared. And um, what they discovered was, sadly, that the boat had sunk so quickly that they didn't, they were not able to get a distress call out. Only one man survived on that boat to tell the tale. It's in the show. That's um, that's a very, I think I remember that because it's been my favorite show. We've always wondered when those waves hit the boat, it's like, it, it's incredible. It must be really, really scary seeing like you're sitting there and all of a sudden the wave is as big as a skyscraper coming over the side of the boat. It had to be scary. That's what happened. Yeah. That's what happened to them. It was a rogue wave. So a rogue wave is when two waves come together mm-hmm. and make one really big wave. And so that's what hit the boat that sank. And it hit another boat in the fleet as well. And that boat also capsized. People don't know this, but one of the skippers on the deadliest catch was in the other boat that also flipped over. And he and I were talking one day and he said something, something guardian angels. And I said, excuse me, did you just say guardian angels? And uh, it was Captain uh, Jonathan, the Time Bandit, and he said, "Yeah, Guardian Angels, the Guardian Angels. I have Guardian Angels." And uh, <laughs> and I said, "What are you talking about?" And he and he proceeded to tell me the story. He said the the wave that sank the Big Valley also hit his boat. He said his boat also capsized, and he was captain. And he said the difference between me and the Big Valley was my rudder was still in the water. Oh wow. So he used his rudder to steer the boat broadside to the waves mm-hmm. so that it could flip him upright. Oh, wow. And what he did, and this was illegal. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, Captain Jonathan, I'm outing your little secret. But what he did was the second they got that boat righted, he told his guys to throw those pots those big, heavy steel traps off the boat. The season hadn't started yet, but he had to get that weight off the deck so that they didn't flip over again and sink. And uh, that's how he survived. And so he, you know, for him, it was a story of guardian angels because he knew that his friends had died from the exact same wave, but he's still here. (laughs) And so he attributes that to that, that he had help. And that's the name of my book, Help From Above. So he, he and I actually share that sort of experience of being helped and guided and protected from the things that have killed our friends. Um, are you religious? Uh, no, not at all. No, yeah. <laughs> I'm not religious at all. But you mean sound like some of the experiences like, um, you know, guarding, like, you know, Captain Johnson guarding angel, but some of the, yeah. experience, like you, you feel like somebody's watching out for you. I know there is. Um, I talk a lot about it in the book mm-hmm. and, um, now the second book just came out and, and, uh, and I tell the stories in, in those books of the voices that I hear sometimes. And the voices are, Usually they're telling me to do things that make no sense, mm-hmm. uh, but I always do whatever they ask me to do. 
So I uh, hope your lis- listeners aren't weirded out, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of like those homeless guys that you see babbling to themselves in the, <laughs> in the street. Uh, I'm kind of the same way. I, I hear voices and I, I do what they tell me. And it's always in unexpected ways. It, it turns out for the best. And uh, for example, when my mom was dying, it was a very terrible time of my life. She was dying of cancer and she fell ill very suddenly. So none of our loved ones got to come see her. None of her friends or, or family, her brothers and sisters, they didn't get to come see her before she passed. So um, I knew that. And among the people who didn't have time to come visit her before she died was her mom, my grandma. And I heard this voice in my in my head that said, call grandma and put her on the phone. And I'm thinking about that and going, that doesn't make any sense. My mom's in a coma. Why am I going to put her on the phone with grandma? I don't She can't talk. She can't hear anything. Well, what am I going to do that for? And this voice said, call grandma and put her on the phone. And so I called my grandma and I said, grandma, um, I know this sounds weird, but I said, um, mom can't talk, but I know she can hear you. And I'm going to put the phone by her ear. And if, if you want, you can talk to her. So I, I, this was in the old days of corded phones. So I put <laughs> the corded phone next to my mom's ear. And now I'm sitting in this room with my mom who's in a coma who now has a telephone sitting next to her ear and I'm sitting there and I'm going, what in the heck am I doing? (laughs) This makes no sense at all. But I was doing what that little voice in my head had told me to do. And so I'm sitting there and I can hear my mom breathing. There's nothing else going on. And then I start to hear this sort of whispery sound and it's my grandma and she's talking to my mom and my mom's in a coma and can't answer back. But grandma talked and talked and talked and she went on and on talking to my mom, her daughter. And I had some appreciation that this was important, that this was a conversation that my grandma needed to have with her daughter before she died. I had some appreciation of it, but it certainly wasn't my idea. (laughs) And, uh, and, but I did it. And, and that's one of a hundred times where the, a voice in my head tells me very strongly to do something that makes no sense to me, but I do it. And then I look back on it and I go, Oh, I, I guess that makes sense. You know, even though my mom can't talk back, I, I guess grandma had to, to, uh, to get that stuff off her chest. And, um, when I picked up the phone, she sounded different. She sounded, it was as if a weight had been lifted off of her. And uh, the women in the family all found out that this had happened because I guess grandma told them. And they said, oh, Dave, you're so smart and clever and the, the thing to do that for grandma. And uh, and I said, okay, thank you very much. But I, I knew that it wasn't me that had come up with that plan to, to put my comatose mother on the phone. And, um, and, and I'm, glad I'm, I'm glad I did. And so that's that's one of a hundred stories in the books where I think readers will start to see, oh, okay, actually, Dave's not that smart. Sometimes he just does what these voices tell him to do and it and it works out for the best. It's like almost listening to your intuition in a sense and maybe a little bit too, maybe the voice in your head, maybe something that you think you should do. Well, Joe, I, you know, to your point, I'm not a religious person Mm -hmm. and I I respect people's religion. Mm -hmm. So I don't. When I tell those stories, I never tell people what to think of it. Mm-hmm. 
who the voice is, where it came from. I just tell them what happened okay. and, and whatever their beliefs are, however they can rectify it or accept it or, you know, take the story, you know, with some meaning for them. I, I let that go. I just tell them what happened and then they can figure out what it means. And that's the whole book is written that way. Well, it's an interesting story I want to share with you. Since we're talking about that for a second, I was at a um, sports arena like a couple years ago. I'm walking. We're finishing the um, walking down the stairs. And I heard I'm, I'm on my last three stairs. I heard a voice. I mean, I'm not I'm not kidding. Goes, You're going to fall. So I brace. All of a sudden, I if I didn't do that, I would have broken my leg. But since I oh, you're going to fall. I, and I some reason my body went li- like numb, like limp. And I, I fell down like four stairs on cement stairs and I got up. No problem. And I tell that story and people are like, you, you okay? You had too many beers. No, I had two, <laughs> but, yeah. it was, but it was, it was like a voice, like a voice and you're going to fall. Okay. So, so what do you think that voice was? What, what was that? I can't explain it. I, I, I really can't explain it. Um, I mean, it could be a guardian angel. Could be somebody, it could be, I don't know. I really don't know, but it was a weird experience. Well, see, that's what Captain Jonathan says on the deadly sketch. He, he calls it guardian angels and I believe him. And I, and he, he's had experiences like you where he knows he was helped mm-hmm. by someone he couldn't see that allowed him to survive a fate that the next boat over killed everyone on the boat and, uh, including the captain of that boat. And, um, and it's interesting when I was little, this story is not in the book. Mm-hmm. My first experience of this when I was very little, um, I was uh, at our family owned a rental house. I was there with my dad. He was doing some work and I saw a bag of water Mm -hmm. on the ground. I knew it was water because I'd seen movies where they like in Lawrence of Arabia where they drank out of bags, you know, like camel bags. And (laughs) that's what they did in the desert. And so I knew it was water. So I went to drink it and this voice stopped me (laughs) and said, pour it on the ground. And that didn't make any sense. Why would I pour water out? I'm just going to drink it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it was just this funny thing where I was I was coerced mm-hmm. and I was convinced to just dump this on the ground first. So I took this and I and I poured it on the ground and the ground started bubbling mm-hmm. and bubbling and the bubbles were getting bigger. Mm-hmm. And my dad happened upon me and he sees me there and he looks at that and he goes, what are you doing? And I go, well, I just I was going to drink this, but I dumped some on the ground. And he said, son, that's acid, that's oh. sulfuric acid. He said, we, we use that to clean concrete floors. Oh, wow. And I was probably eight years old at the time and had never seen anything like that. And it was in this clear, unmarked bag that I was so sure was water, but this voice stopped me mm-hmm. from drinking it and saved me. And, and I'm watching this acid just eat away at the, the earth and stone and rocks that are at my feet. And that, that was one of my first and earliest experiences of this, this sort of presence that I can't see, but that was protecting me and guiding me. And in this case, stopping me from, you know, hurting or killing myself. Well, what's interesting too, is one of the, the sayings I like the from the front of the book, how I went from sweeping the floor to painting the skies. That's an interesting little um, quote there in the front of your book. What does that mean to you? Well, it's a true story. I was hired off the street with no experience or technical skills by a aerospace company mm-hmm. that deals with sophisticated electronics. 
And the other guys in the shop were a little surprised that I got hired because <laughs> I didn't know anything. <laughs> and I found out years later that I was specifically hired because of my attitude. And so here I am in the shop. I don't know anything about anything. And the, the other guys were a little bit niffed about it. <laughs> they were kind of, they were laughing, but also just annoyed and frustrated that I had been hired into this very, very sophisticated technical realm. And I didn't know how to do anything. And so I'm, I'm by myself in the shop and I'm looking around and the shop's a mess. And uh, all the guys are out flying over the Super Bowl or the World Series or a Steven Spielberg movie with their fancy aerospace camera electronics. And they were too busy to clean up the shop. So so I started sweeping the floor. And in those days, and I think this is why I got hired. In those days, I took any job. If, if you said, Dave, wash the windows, I would wash the windows until they were perfectly clean. And so in the case of sweeping the floor, I swept the floor. I stayed. No one told me to do this, but I stayed all night and I swept and swept and swept. And then I started straightening up the shop and putting away stuff. And I didn't know how to use any of the gadgets, but I knew if I could just organize them a little bit better, I could make the shop neat so that the guys could come in and work on one of the computerized camera gimbals. And when the bosses came in to the shop the next day, you couldn't recognize the place. It didn't look like the same shop. And uh, my boss, my supervisor at the time pointed at me and he said, that's it. He said, you're going with me on my next movie shoot. <laughs> and uh, and so there I was uh, floating in a helicopter over a big Hollywood movie in Miami. And uh, I was kind of promoted on the spot. And so I, I literally started sweeping the floor. But I, I swept the floor so well that they wanted to give me a bigger and more important and higher paying jobs. And I, I'm really glad that kids today can read my story and can see, oh, okay, so let's, let's just uh, shatter any illusion that they had that to work on the Super Bowl, you have to be God's gift to humanity and you have to be the smartest, most capable, most powerful person on earth. Uh, in fact, it's the opposite. It's, um, my skills and my smarts are always the least in the room. I'm always, you know, this may sound weird, but I'm always the dumbest guy in the room, bar none. And I, I'm always around colleagues who are way more educated, way smarter. Um, but I'm in the room because I did a really good job sweeping the floor and that's what employers value over time is someone who will work hard, not complain. And if something's wrong, we'll just try to make it better, not complain about it, not make a stink over it. And uh, so I'm glad that kids today are, can, can read these stories and, and sort of have some sense of that, you know, for their careers or for their life choices and, uh, and find a way to, to work on their Super Bowl like I've done or find a way to work on their Super Bowl like I have done in whatever field they choose. And, um, and so that's, you know, sweeping the floor to painting the sky is, is the true story of, of my life and career. And it seems like attitude, attitude's important. And I'm having, I'm not having a negative attitude, a positive attitude and willing to just do the gritty stuff and get it done. Exactly. It's, it's having a good attitude when it, when something really sucks, 
because that's when it matters. And that's what they remember. For example, uh, early in my career at this aerospace company, someone completely screwed up the shipping logistics and the equipment was in the wrong state. So I didn't say a word to anybody. I climbed in the delivery truck with the big camera cases, which are the size of refrigerators. And I slept on those boxes as the truck drove across the country, literally overnight to get to the other side of the country where they were supposed to be. Didn't say a word to anybody. Got out of the truck. When we got there, they rolled up the door and the cases came out and I came out and I built the equipment. The equipment broke. So I got my tools out and I soldered wires to fix the equipment. Didn't say a word to anybody. And as the sun's coming up, I finally get everything ready and right. And I go to the hotel where the crew is staying for this commercial that we were filming. And as I'm walking into the hotel, the other crew are walking out to get in the vans to drive out to location to film this commercial. And I didn't say a word to anybody. I went in, I took a shower, I came right back out, got in the van with them. And we went to location and I worked all day. <laughs> and, uh, and at the end of that day, um, my supervisor on the show was our director of photography. And he said, Dave, um, the producers are going to come over and they want to have a word with you. And, uh, <laughs> so they, I said, Oh, okay. So they came over and, um, they started listing the openings that they had throughout their company. Hey Dave, would you be interested in working in this department or would you like to work in this department? Does that sound good to you? And, uh, and then they left. And uh, I asked the director of photography, I said, well, that was so weird because aren't they mad at me because the, the equipment didn't get shipped correctly. So it was a, you know, kind of a stressful situation. That's like a problem. I said, aren't, aren't they mad about that? And he just laughed and he goes, Dave, they noticed that you worked all night without complaint. You didn't say a word to anybody. You just got the job done, whatever it took and made it happen. And he said, that's the kind of people they want because mm -hmm. every day something's wrong. Every day something gets shipped to the wrong state. That's normal. But what they're looking for, what's not normal is someone who won't yell and scream and make the problem worse. Somebody who will just, if it, if it needs to be done, work all night with a big smile and make it happen, even though everything's been done incorrectly up to that point so that they can move forward. And so that was, you know, I was a young kid in those days and I didn't have a lot of work experience. And that was eye opening to me. I, I thought they were going to want to fire me or something. And instead they, they came up and not only did they offer me jobs, they were just trying to find any, any place they could put me in their company because of what he said. They, they literally said, you know what? We can teach him anything. <laughs> you know, doesn't, that doesn't matter. What, what matters is that if something's wrong, he'll work hard, be nice to everyone and make it as good as we can so that we can get our, our the whole company can get our job done. That's important. I think another thing, too, as I found interesting, your second book, I really want to talk about that a little bit, too, before we wrap up, is um, – about the one about the organ, like what is above the cloud, the true crime story about the uh, bus stop and the, um, what was that about? Yeah. Book two has come out and it's called what lies above the clouds. It's on Amazon and it is the true story of my battle against organized crime. And I tell day by day what I went through, how this all began. And that's, that story is the reason that I'm writing books 
because I would have taken the the sweeping the floor story to my grave. I I was comfortable not talking about my my work life, mm-hmm. but um, but I had to start writing books because of what happened at the school bus stop in a little town. And, um, and so for five years I fought against these guys and I drew a line in the sand and on one side of that line were a bunch of kids waiting for the school bus. And on the other side of the line were a bunch of gangsters and criminals and killers. And I dealt with them for five years. And, um, going back to me being the dumbest guy in the room, everyone else knew (laughs) not to cross these guys, that they were dangerous and they were deadly and they were murderers. And I just didn't have it in me. I, I didn't, I didn't think logically about it. I just had a very emotional response, kind of like a bear when the, when the bear cubs are threatened, that's kind of how I reacted. And it went on for five years and I just had this sort of primal response to these killers doing all kinds of illegal business at the school bus stop is I just literally said, you can have crime and corruption everywhere else. Not here because kids come here six times a day to wait for that bus and I'm not going to live like that. And so that's, that's how it went for five years. And uh, I can tell you this, the, the adventures and the stories are humorous and, and really scary. And it's just the true story of how I live my life, which is uh, sometimes to not do the smart thing or the easy thing. What about the easy thing though, about standing up to him, you must've been, um, must've been scary. It must've been scary at the time. Yeah, it was uh, scary all the time. It was a night. Um, my neighbors, w- one of my neighbors told me one day, because I found that uh, in the beginning, I rallied the neighbors. And I would organize weekly meetings of our neighbors to share information, to you know work together, to notify the authorities, to get this illegal business moved away from the children and basically restore safety mm-hmm. to the school bus stop. But I noticed that the meetings were getting smaller and smaller. And people stopped taking my phone calls. People stopped responding to text messages. People stopped emailing me back. And the ones that would still talk to me would say things, and this is in the book, What Lies Above the Clouds. Um, one of my neighbors told me one day, he said, I, he said, Dave, I can't be seen talking to you anymore. And I said, oh, really? Why is that? And he said, I'm afraid they'll kill us. So things had gotten so dangerous with this organized crime ring that it was perceived deadly dangerous to be seen talking to me because everyone knew that I was publicly fighting against them. I was appearing on television. I was appearing on the radio talking about this menace to the school kids. Mm -hmm. And these guys were so dangerous. One of them was on the most wanted list. Oh, wow. And, um, and so my neighbors all did the math on that and said, no way (laughs) are we gonna, and so they, they stopped talking to me, a lot of them. And um, I don't fault them for it. I'm, I'm very open and honest about the whole experience of this thing. But I, I do detail those, those really dark times where I was, not only did people abandon the cause, but they left me out as the one guy still fighting against these gangsters publicly and standing up to them and going to uh, corrupt city council meetings to speak out about this menace at the school bus stop. And, and it was a very, very dark and dangerous and scary time. And I, I tell it day by day, exactly how it happened. Mm -hmm. And from start to finish, I think, um, I think it's a story worth of worthy of remembering because 
I really hope that when people see this kind of garbage in their community, that they'll do what I did and make the dangerous choice and take a risk to stand up to these guys who are killing people and throwing the bodies in the woods and to get in their way and not move. Because I, I really think that's what life's all about. Life, life is going to serve you a series of difficult choices and challenges. You know, you could call them a nightmare mm-hmm. or you could call it an adventure. I don't care what you call it. I just believe that when it comes time to protect innocence, that that's what I'm going to do. And I don't care what happens next because I'll, I'll guarantee you this. I won't regret it as long as I do the right thing. And so I'm, I'm glad this story has gone public and I name names. This is a live situation. When you read in the book about the people who ran this illegal business at the school bus stop, they are named in the book and they're still out there. And when you read the story of how we found one of the victims murdered and his body thrown in the woods behind the building, uh, that homicide has not been investigated by police. Oh, wow. That is an inter. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. What am I questioning too, as a father too, how do you feel about your son too? And does your son know stuff, anything about the situation? He knows everything about it. Unfortunately, he grew up, he was three years old when this gang took over my town and I had a tough choice to make. And I'm very honest about that. I can't say that I made the right choice. All I can tell you is that I couldn't let it go. And first and foremost, I had to make the town safe again for my little one. But in order to do that, it wound up being a five-year one-man crusade Mm -hmm. against a $100 million illegal business where they are making so much money illegally Mm -hmm. that they are literally killing people and throwing them in the woods to, to keep the money flowing. And so I, I'm just very honest in the book about the danger that my little one endured, what we had to go through to deal with this and what I believe is the right way and the way it should always be dealt with, which is head on and in their face. I was never violent. I was never even rude to the bad guys, but I made it abundantly clear that you don't do that kind of illegal crap here because this is where children gather six times a day. Final thoughts about being a father, being a person who perseveres, puts the hard work in and the challenges in life. I don't know if your thoughts about final thoughts about that. Yeah, I'm very clear about that. I believe that our children learn by watching us and seeing what we do. They don't learn I mean, you're a dad, you know, the kids don't learn what you tell them. They don't even listen to what you tell them most of the time. But what they learn and what they pick up 100% is what we do. And so I believe that the way I live my life, the crazy years long adventures that I get into sometimes are things that no thinking person would ever do. And... Now that my little one is old enough to understand some of those stories of what's going on, I'm, I'm really proud of the way I've lived my life. It's not perfect, and sometimes it's not pretty. Sometimes it's a disorganized mess. <laughs> but I tell you what, I don't have any regrets of those times. And I'm proud of the fact that when I was faced with a threat, I said no 
to leaving kids in danger at a school bus stop. When I saw a dog running in traffic, I spent three hours trying to get that dog out of traffic. <laughs> that that story is in the first book, Help From Above. And that dog stayed with us for 13 years. Oh, wow. And get a load of this. When I was surrounded by criminals and gangsters, mm -hmm. when I took on that organized crime ring, I had the most fierce protector in the world of dogs that I have ever seen. <laughs> and I only had that because I did this unthinkable craziness of spending three hours trying to get this crazy mangy dog out of traffic and onto a leash. <laughs> and that dog adopted me in that moment. And she stayed by my side for 13 years. And when we were surrounded by bad guys that, that the humans in the neighborhood were terrified of, she never, this dog never backed down. She protected me and my little one with, with her life if she had to. And she always put herself between me and the gangsters. So I'm, I'm proud of the way I've lived my life and the choices I've made. And I think that's what being a dad is all about. It's, it's not perfect and it's not pretty, but it's, it's an important process of going out of your way to do the right things because that's what kids learn from. Um, where the, if somebody wants to connect with you, where can they find you and find your book? Uh, the books are on Amazon because it's because the second book is a story of organized crime. I had to self-publish because the bad guys threatened lawsuits. So my books are right now only on Amazon. You can look up by my name, David Allen Arnold. Uh, or if you just go to Amazon and you type in three words, help from above, it will lead you not only to my name, but also the series of help from above books, including the, the book about organized crime. And uh, you'll you'll find it all. And that's that's the best way. I'm on every social media. If you if you look for any of those things, help from above, David Allen Arnold, A-L-A-N. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube and uh, Amazon. Well, David um, Allen Arnold, thank you very much for being on the podcast today. And I do do think you're smarter than you think, sir. But I, <laughs> I really that's do think you're courageous and smarter, smarter than you think. Well, again, thank you, Dave, for David on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Well, likewise, thank you. And and I'm a big fan of what you're doing. And I, I love the stories that you're sharing and the, the kind of uh, uh, messages that you're bringing to your audience. Thank you. Well, that's all I have for this episode. I want to thank David Allen Arnold for being a guest on the podcast. You can find more about David over at davidallenarnold.com. You should actually go over and check it out, really, seriously. He has some really cool pictures. Check out his Instagram pitch, his Facebook. It's all the stuff he's doing around. And check out his books, too. His book, the one I read, is actually talks about Help From Above. Help From Above, book two, What Lies in the Clouds. And also, check out all of the stuff he has over at davidallenarnold.com. Little show notes and links every talk will be in the show notes at nosittingonthesideline.com slash 65. Hey, please reach out, comment. If you have any questions, you can leave a comment in the show notes. You can find all my contact information at nosittingonthesideline.com slash contact. You can find my social media, anything you want to, if you want to get in touch, just say hello. Hi, I'm out there. Good job, Joe. Or just, hey, I'm here. I wrap up, I guess. It's just this whole episode made me think about, you know, positive attitude, hard work can go a long way in life. Because life always seems to throw curveballs. It's kind of what kind of the attitude you have with it. Really, there's something to it. I still haven't figured it out exactly, but I see glimpses of it. When you have a positive attitude, you can rock whatever you're doing. With a negative attitude, yeah, it's just going to stink. 
It's not going to be easy. Well, that's all. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take care. Give kids a hug. Tell them much you love them. You know what? Time's short. God bless. Take care. See ya. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Please subscribe to the newsletter to receive updates of the show and helpful and useful tips. This has been a production of Foley 42 Media.